0: It's a joy to be here today and a, a joy to get to have lunch uh, with, with folks who are sticking around for the church plant information meeting. And, uh, and we know it's Christmas and there's a lot going on, so several of you have already said I can't make that meeting. Attending the meeting doesn't commit you to the church plant, by the way, just, it's an opportunity to get information. Uh, but we're going to have more of those in January, so I so don't think you missed out. We're, we're going to have opportunities for you to be a part of that. Um, well, the series, uh, the Advent series that we've uh, been in is how the weary world rejoices. And each week, we've looked at something about Jesus uh, that we can rejoice in. And two weeks ago, when I was here uh, with my wife and one of my sons, my, my wife is right over here, Michelle. Uh, we, are, we are 24. Uh, tomorrow's our anniversary. And so, uh, uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, way to go, Michelle. Uh, you get all the applause. Well, right? All the applause goes to God first, but uh, uh, you secondarily. And Joel is with me over here as well. Joel wasn't with us on the, the last time, but he's a senior at Panther Creek High School and heading to DBU next uh, year. So we're excited about that. So I just want, if you have some time to, to, to meet them afterwards, please uh, do so. Uh, well, this week we're going to talk about how we can rejoice in something else. And we've already read uh, the passage we're going to look at and kind of lit the candle on it. And that is in, is in his eternal joy, his unending joy, is something that we can rejoice in, that we actually can find our joy in great difficulty by looking out at his joy. And I hope that we see that in Isaiah 8 and 9. And so what I'm going to do is what, what, what Pastor Ryan's been doing is to share another prequel to the Christmas story. Not starting with shepherds or wise men, but actually going back like 700 years before the events in, uh, in Bethlehem took place with a prophet named Isaiah who lived in the city of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom around 740 B.C., And when he lived there, it was in the worst possible time imaginable. The nation is divided through civil war. It's in a state of national decline, spiritual decay, moral compromise. There's threats of invasion everywhere. From the north, he's ministering in the south, so it's coming from the north as the northern kingdom's budding up with foreign kings and threatening to invade the south, And coming from the east, from the kingdom of Assyria and later on Babylon, and the southern king is, uh, kings were always seeking to make a deal with another political entity that could protect them. And so with all of that, Isaiah is called to minister and to speak against it and calling kings and the people to trust in God instead of trusting in themselves, instead of trusting these foreign entities. Because if they do, judgment is going to come. Well, the people don't listen to Isaiah The kings don't listen to Isaiah or any of the other prophets, uh, for that matter. And God calls Isaiah to a hard ministry and a hard place and a hard life. He basically says, I want you to speak my truth to my people, regardless of if they follow or not. He even asks Isaiah to name his own kid Swift to the plunder to be kind of this living witness that God is going to bring about a swift plundering of judgment to the people of God if they don't repent, if they don't turn back. And he does. So Isaiah lived in what he describes in chapter 8 as a, a gloom of anguish. It's the picture of this dark cloud that just settled over the land and stayed there. And if you ever read the book of Isaiah, it's 66 chapters long. Throughout the book, he's just haunted with these questions. Like, when does the cloud go away? When does this thing get better? When does God just kind of sweep all of that gloom and the cloud of anguish away? And in the meantime, how do I live up under it? See, most of us probably wouldn't think we have anything in common with some 8th century poor prophet. And yet, many of us know exactly what it's like to see a cloud come, hover over us, and you're just waiting for that thing to go away. And you're asking God to please remove this gloom of anguish from my life. Because now I have to live under it. And how do I live under it? I wonder if anybody's Got some haunting questions like that today. Well, the word that God gives to Isaiah, I believe he gives to us over and over again throughout the book. He tells Isaiah the story of Christmas. We're going to look at Isaiah 9, but it happens in other places. And what he tells Isaiah is what he tells us. Christmas is the death of gloom in the birth of Christ. This is how gloom goes away. It's in the birth of Christ. It's the death of gloom and the birth of Christ. And so I just want us to look at a few passages in chapter 8 and 9 and let it answer three questions for us. Number one, what kind of gloom is he facing? If we can understand that, we'll understand our predicament even better. Number two, what does it look like for gloom to be reversed? And number three, how does the birth of Christ actually do that? So in, in honor of God's word, would you mind standing? We're not going to look at one passage, but several. So just in honor of God's word, before we get into it, can we stand one last time and let me pray. Lord, as we stand in honor of your word, we also submit ourselves under it. It has authority over our lives. It has the ability to do what we can't do. So open up our eyes and ears and hearts now and let the truth come and do what only it can do, which is to set us free. Your truth sets us free, and we submit ourselves to it. In Jesus' name we all pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. What kind of gloom is Isaiah up against? Well, it's going to be on the screen behind me. Welcome to turn there. Uh, But in chapter 8, verse 4, he says this, Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. This king that there going after is going to actually carry him away. The Lord spoke again in verse 5, because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remilia, that's a foreign king. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria And all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. Because they're going after a foreign king instead of looking up to God and trusting God, and they want. Uh, those rivers and those waters, God's going to let them have what they want. If you turn your back on God and ask for this other thing and pursue this other thing, sometimes God gives you what you want and it's not going to be the flowing waters that are gentle from Shiloh. It's going to be this sweeping river, mighty and many. It's going to overflow every area of their life in judgment. It's going to rise over everything. It's going to ruin everything and sweep on into Judah. And they're going to be up to their neck in judgment from this king of Assyria. Verse 21 says, They'll pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, Now, that's a spiritual hunger, but spiritual hunger sometimes also leads to physical hunger. And when they are hungry, they'll be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward, not in trust, but in defiance. And they'll look to the earth and behold distress and darkness. So they'll look to their hands. They'll look to their cleverness. They'll look to their own self-preservation. Instead of looking up to God, they'll look to, to what they can do. And instead of bounty or fruitfulness, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. Not just gloom, but the gloom of anguish, and not just any darkness, but a thick darkness. And in other places of the Old Testament, it's like a darkness that can be felt. It's it's a terrible predicament that the people of God are going to experience, and Isaiah can do nothing about it. This word gloom means faintness, it means weariness, it means distress, and it's brought about by evil and by by the choices that the people of God have made, and we we understand uh, what they're going through. It's not just unique to them, because you and I did the same thing Adam and Eve did when they incurred faintness and weariness, when they chose to live independent from God. God says, I don't want you to know evil, and Adam and Eve said, well, we do. And they chose faintness and weariness. They chose the gloom of anguish because they chose sin. They, uh, they decided to break God's law, uh, uh, to, to, to love him and obey him and to, to love neighbor. And they chose that and we chose that. They walked out of the garden and so did we. I wonder if you've ever imagined yourself doing that. So I'm not, I'm not as evil as all those people out there. And yet, you've experienced your own distress, haven't you, because of your own sin? Isaiah was able to, even though he's a prophet of God, speaking on behalf of God, when he sees the glory of God in Isaiah 6, he actually says, I'm a man of unclean lips. See, that's where we need to begin. See, the problem isn't just out there. It's right here. Isaiah could say, I'm just a victim of all this gloom, Around me, but he's not just a victim. He is a contributor to the darkness. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And this right here is the starting point of the Christmas story. So, so everybody's contributed to this whirlwind of darkness, and God has to do something to overcome it. We're all products of, but contributors of this weariness and this faintness. So God has to move. He's got to reverse it. And in verse 1 of chapter 9, there's this huge contrast that takes place in the form of a promise. So it's going to be on the screen behind me, but look at chapter 9, verse 1. That's what leads into this next phrase, which is absolutely amazing given the backdrop. In verse 1, it says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. So the people of God at some point in the future with this coming Messiah is going to experience the opposite. No gloom for those who incurred only this anguish and this gloom. The NIV translates translates that nevertheless because it's such a contrasting word. It's just a stronger word than the word but. Nevertheless, this is going to happen. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So now we've got this this prophetic, messianic promise of somebody who is going to reverse the curse of sin. Well, how does he do it? Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shown. Notice that the people who have incurred the judgment of God are still in the dark. They're walking around in the dark. They're dwelling in the land of deep darkness, and they are not looking for the light. They're not interested in the light. They're not seeking and searching and pursuing the light. They're happy to dwell in the land of deep darkness. And so now God has to do something for these people who will not see his light unless he acts, and he does. It says, on them, on those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, notice, light has shone. Not, not just any light, a great light. Now, when, when light shines in a dark place, it, sh- it shines quickly, uh, invasively, suddenly, sometimes surprisingly, when I go into my kids' uh, room to wake them up, I flip, flip the light on, and it's surprising and it's sudden, and uh, and it, it lights up the whole place. And that's what light does. And that's what grace does. Grace comes to us suddenly. It comes to us surprisingly to people who aren't searching for it, aren't looking for it, to the unlikely, to the unwelcoming. And that's the story of my life. And even if you were raised in a Christian home, that's actually the story of your life. That's how you came to know Christ. You were walking in darkness and kind of happy to stay there. And on you, the unlikely, the unsearching, a great light has shown. And that's how grace comes. It comes out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere for the apostle Paul. Do you remember this in Acts 9? Saul still breathing out murderous threats, In other words, still living in the land of darkness and happy to stay there, while he's breathing out threats against the people of God, we're told, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He heard the very voice of Jesus. That light came sudden. It came surprising. It came with warmth and it came with with mercy. Remember the story of the shepherds. The shepherds weren't looking for God when all of a sudden in the dark sky, the angels show up and and blaze it up and, and it's, it's as bright as the sun and they're terrified and they fall to the ground and then they hear gospel words, fear not. I bring you good news of great joy that are going to be for all the people. And so this is this is how grace comes. It comes sudden and surprising. It comes like light comes. And when it comes, it brings about joy. It did for the shepherds and it does here. Look at verse three. You've multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you. What a reversal of fortune. Here they were in darkness and now they're rejoicing before God who, who brought about grace in their life. And notice that the joy is as with the joy at the harvest. That's like the holiday. That's the special day. The harvest day at that time was kind of like Christmas day. It's the day where they're glad and they divide the spoil, verse 3 says. That's what happens on Christmas morning. You divide the spoil. (laughs) And and so what this is saying, it's like this Messiah King, however he brings about this joy, is going to make it such in our hearts that it's, it's like the harvest day every day you could say it's kind of like christmas day every day how is that well here's why because verse 4 says for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder the rod of the oppressor you've broken as on the day of midian this messiah king is going to break off the staff and the rod of every oppressive evil pain inducing misery spreading evil king and empire in the world. If you go against this king, and many have, many will, uh, you're in for trouble. Look at verse five. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, listen, every evil cell that resists this Messiah king will itself get booted out of his kingdom. Every boastful, evil, oppressive person or anything that's boasted about all their garments that's been rolled in blood, he himself will take and throw it in as fuel burned for the fire of his own worship. So he's going to crush evil. He's going to stamp it out. He's going to boot it out. He's going to push it out. And that's cause for rejoicing. It's one thing when you rejoice over something that you're getting. But what if you get freedom from uh, evil oppression? Well, Christmas is God's declared war on gloom and darkness because a king can break off the burdens of evil kings. Well, what kind of birth does this? Well, it's the birth of Jesus and it ends gloom forever. And the, the question that you would be asking as you're reading this in the sort of 8th century is, how does that, how does that come about? And, and here Isaiah tells us. Look at verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. There's a repeated phrase for emphasis. And we're supposed to see the correlation between child and son and born and given, That's not too hard to see right there in the text. We're supposed to connect those words together. And child is not like a, a symbolism there. This is an actual human child that just got written about. For to us, a human child is born. So here we have a human child who is at the same time God's son. There's a human child who is God's son who is born born, even though he's God's son, and he's a gift. Connect all those together. Human child, Godson, son, gift, and for emphasis, to us, twice. To you and me, to the unlikely, the undeserving, the unworthy, the unpursuing, born to us. This human child will have an ability to do what no king can do. The government, that means all governments, shall be upon his shoulders. So he must be God's son because no no human has the ability to shoulder the weight of the whole world. What human being, as you're reading this in the 8th century, has that kind of strength, has that kind of power? Who can do such a thing? It would crush him. Well, only a human child with the following names: wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. So now, now we are bumping up to the great miracle and mystery of the incarnation. Here, this. This human is going to have the wisdom and the counsel of God. He's going to have capabilities and capacities to bring about wonder as he speaks. He is himself almighty Yahweh. He is one with the everlasting Father. And he is the Prince of Peace. He's the King of Heaven. If you've never heard the word incarnation... It's a theological word that basically means that this is the the amazing promise of fully God, the eternal Son, taking on flesh and becoming fully human. And as he takes on human flesh, he doesn't become like half God and then half human. He's not 50% God and 50% human. He's 100% God And he's 100% human at the exact same time. The one and only God-man entering into his own creation. He's the creator stepping into the story of his own creation. Now, the incarnation, we really need to think about at Christmas time. It's an appropriate moment to just pause and consider the depth of it. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, said it this way. He said, The real difficulty, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us, does not lie in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of the incarnation. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the incarnation. Now, you may be... A person like me, I love fictional stories and fictional movies and all all of that, so I'm a big fan. Well, Packer says, nothing you've ever watched, nothing you've ever read, no story yet to come out of Hollywood has anything on the fantastic nature of the creator of the universe stepping into his creation in Jerusalem to, to a place that you can fly to today. This same point was stressed by C.S. Lewis. He said the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. The fitness and therefore credibility of the particular miracles depends on their relation to the grand miracle. Here C.S. Lewis's argument here all discussion of them in isolation from it is futile. There's a lot of young adults and young people that I talk to that at times struggle with the, the miracles. They'll, they'll see a miracle in the Bible, and they're just, they're just wondering about that, and it's kind of in a process of some uh, of, of deconstructing. Well, listen to J.I. Packer and C.S. Lewis save you a lot of time, uh, mercifully, Uh, Move past all of those miracles. It's not as though they don't matter, but move past those to the grand miracle, the central miracle, the main miracle. The, The main issue is not how does Moses walk through the sea. The central miracle is how does God come to us through the womb of a frightened Jewish girl? How does he do that? And why would he do that? And if we can get around believing that, if, if we believe that by divine grace, it grounds us in an assurance of his love that C.S. Lewis and J.I. Pack was, were very aware of. Because it follows a logic from the greater to the lesser. If God shows up with that kind of mercy in a manger... He will show up with that kind of mercy on Good Friday. He will show up with that kind of mercy on Easter Sunday. He will show up with that kind of mercy in your life when you came to believe. And he will show up with that kind of mercy for the rest of your life and on into eternity. If God tips the first domino of incarnation, every other miraculous domino falls and it keeps on falling. You know, I don't play a ton of dominoes, but I love to stack dominoes. Anybody like to do that? Especially as a kid, I used to, like, just stack them up and and just see how long they would go, but we didn't have a ton of dominoes, maybe a couple of boxes, and so I would just stack those dominoes up, hit the first domino, and just watch them all fall. Occasionally, somebody would go to the back of the closet, and there'd be another box, and it was like, all right, we get more dominoes. We get to stack even more. Listen, what this teaches us is that the incarnation is that primary first miraculous domino that falls and keeps on falling over and over again with miracle after miracle until it arrives right where you're sitting today. And the incredible good news for all of us today is that God always has another box in the back for you. He never runs out. He will never run out. You say, well, how is that possible? Well, look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, notice this, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now, it's one thing for, for God to say, you know, of the, uh, uh, you know his, his rule, uh, he rules everything. That's one statement. That's one way of saying it. But that's not what it says. It says, it says of the increase of his government, of his rule, and of peace, There will be no end. The translation is that his rule starts in Bethlehem, and then it increases. And then it increases again, and more, and more, and it never stops increasing. Because his rule never stops increasing, and his government never stops increasing, peace never stops increasing, right? That makes sense? If if his government and his rule never stops, then peace never stops, and for us, wonder never stops increasing. Glory never stops increasing. I mean, can you wrap your head around this? Joy will never stop increasing. There will be a time in your life when gloom is not only a foggy memory, it's an increasingly fading memory. It, it'll be in the rearview mirror as you just keep on increasing in joy. Can you imagine a king that does this? Can you imagine that you're in that place today? Can you imagine a king who makes every day better than the last day? Like, there's a city right now where there's no mountaintop, no finish line, no crest line, no high-water mark, and then we look back at the good old days, nostalgically. There's no nostalgic looking back. You don't get to heaven and then see the king of the universe, and he's, like, passing out his greatest hits. Because with God, there's always a greater hit. There's always something better coming. And it's always right in front. It's always right in front. Now, for you, I don't know how relief comes, but... but For me, it comes when I know something certain is on its way. No no doubts, but something certain is clearly coming my way that's good, and I know it's going to bring me joy. Uh, In the Christmas of 1988, okay, any Gen Xers in here? I know you're there. I wanted an NES, a Nintendo Entertainment system, the original. This is the main thing, guys. Your your PS5s and your Xbox and all that stuff doesn't have anything on the original Nintendo Entertainment System. And all the Gen Xers in the room said, thank you very much. I know you were there. (laughs) But I was doubtful. I didn't know if I was going to get it. I wanted it. All my friends had it. And we were late to the game. I mean, this game had been out for a couple of years. I was doubtful. I wasn't sure I was going to get it. Until at the beginning of the Christmas break, while we were putting away clothes, I discovered a golden cartridge. And over the top of it, it said, The Legend of Zelda. You guys remember this? Remember The Legend of Zelda? And it was gold. I still remember the packaging. I mean, it might as well have been the, the golden Willy Wonka ticket for me. Because it was so cool that, that this happened. And Now, that, this was pre-streaming. So what did that cartridge tell me? That it would have been worthless in and of itself, but it was connected to something. It fit into something that was coming. It provided a certainty amidst all my doubts that something good was on its way. And the days leading up to Christmas, I had no doubt of what was coming my way. And it produced an actual joy. I had never played the game in my life. I hadn't played it. But I knew with certainty something good was coming. And that's, for us, friends, the birth of Jesus. It's a tangible certainty that only fits in the reality that something better is on its way. And listen, it's coming to you right now with great joy. And don't you just get a relief knowing that? There's a real relief that comes when you know that with certainty that's on its way. Well, how does this happen? Don't don't miss that last phrase, that last sentence of this promise. And it was read so perfectly up here. How does this happen? Well, notice verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Hear that promise? This is not our zeal. God's not looking for us to become something, to work up something. It's his zeal that will do This. God's zeal is his jealous desire for this exclusive relationship with us. And that word actually means to boil over. It's like when you have a a pot of hot water that that boils over. Uh, That's what zeal is, the boiling over kind of heat. And that's the kind of of hot love that God has for his people, for the people of God. It, It bubbles over. And that's what this promises. Because God's heart, because his zeal bubbled over in the incarnation. In other words, because God wasn't looking and waiting for us to have a passion for him, he has a passion for us. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And because it happened and boiled over at the incarnation, it boiled bubbled over to the garden where Jesus sweat drops of blood for you and for me. And then it stopped there. It bubbled over to the cross where he stood in your place and stood in my place. And then it bubbled over to an empty tomb where he was triumphantly resurrected on the 3rd day. And it bubbled over in his ascension and his pouring out of the holy spirit. And if if you and I We'll accept this today. If we would just open up our hearts to this truth, God's love is boiling over into your life right now. You say, I don't deserve it, and I'm unworthy, and I'm unlikely. Welcome to Christianity. You you don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But you never will deserve it. You never have deserved it. The people of God never earned this, never merited this, never achieved this. It's just a gift to you, to me. And it's the zeal of God that says at Christmas time something certain is coming. If you're in Jesus today, you're on a bus. Hear this picture yourself this way picture yourself on a bus right now to a city of unending joy and that bus is going to hit some, some turns and it's going to be shaky and it's going to be scary and it's going to look at times you're going to go down this valley and you're going to be under the cloud of gloom and anguish and sadness but if you knew for certain that you're on this bus and it's heading to a city of unending joy it doesn't matter who's sitting next to you you may not like who's sitting next to you either by the way but it changes everything when you know where the bus is going. Doesn't it? You're heading on that bus. You're on that bus right now. And if you're not, if, you, if you're refusing Christ, listen, hear this as a warning. I mean, your best days are now. You're moving towards misery. And the invitation that God gives to you lovingly, gently, is don't refuse this grace Why would you refuse this? Jesus with his nail-scarred hands is reaching out to you and he's saying, take hold of me by faith. Nobody in this room deserves his mercy. You don't deserve it either, but you can receive it by grace, by gift. Receive it by faith, trust. Grab hold of his nail-scarred hands. And as you do, you can rest assured that you're on the bus of grace moving towards an everlasting and unending city of light and life and joy. Let's pray together. If you'll stand with me. God, we thank you for this truth of Christmas and of this great mystery, this great miracle. We just stare into the depths of your holiness and of your mercy. And we're overwhelmed. And we're reminded. And we're thankful. Thank you that you did in in the birth of the Savior what we could never do. And, And help us, Lord, just... To, to rest, fi- Lord, to f- find our joy and our rest in your joy and sort of rediscover that in a, s- in a season of stress and distraction. Help us to rediscover life and joy in your very own. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for joining us for the preaching of God's word at City Church Melissa. We meet Sunday mornings at 8, 9:30 and 11 a.m. and we look forward to meeting you there soon. City Church Melissa, for the glory of God, the good of the city and the hope of the world. Oh, you say